Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I have to ask you, are you going to run again for president of the European Commission? Typically, I say nice try. <laughs> when this question comes, unfortunately. For regular listeners to this podcast, the voice you just heard needs no introduction. It was, of course, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Unfortunately, to tell you, this will not be decided tonight here at Politica, neither. So unfortunately, I have to leave you with that big question mark. She was speaking to Politico's editor-in-chief, Jamil Anderlini, at a gala dinner this week as we unveiled our annual list of Europe's top dreamers, doers, and disruptors. This is the event where the most powerful newsroom in Brussels recognizes and predicts the most powerful figures in Europe for the coming year. And even though you've heard von der Leyen on this podcast many times, from summits and meetings and press conferences... Ladies and gentlemen, a very warm welcome to Brussels. The future of Ukraine is in our union. And I want to make it very clear. The sanctions are here to stay. It's actually the first time she's spoken to Politico in 761 days. That's right, the biggest newsroom in Brussels has had to wait years for an on-the-record sit-down with arguably the most important person around town. So after all that time, was it worth the wait? I'm Sarah Wheaton, your new host of EU Confidential. As you heard in last week's episode, Suzanne Lynch is taking on a new role at Politico. She's the author of our global playbook, and you should absolutely sign up for her new newsletter with a link in the show notes. And so Suzanne's passed the baton over to me. And I'm maybe not an unfamiliar voice for those of you who have listened throughout the years. I'm a longtime EU bubble dweller and currently covering the lobbying scene here in Brussels. So I'm often out and about. So to kick things off, we're going to read between the lines of that interview with von der Leyen. She tackles and sometimes dodges questions on the Israel-Hamas war and whether she wants a second shot at her job. And after the shock election results in the Netherlands last week, our podcast panel is going to dive deeper into the political trends that propelled Heert Builders to victory. The grootste partij van Nederland. And later, and you're going to have to just trust me on this one, our colleague Matt Karnichnig is going to tell us why we should care about the least sexy sounding topic ever, the German budget. But first, let's say hello to Nick Vinokur, Politico's editor-at-large. Hey, Nick. Hi, thanks for having me. And Clea Calcutt, our senior correspondent in Paris, but who is actually here in Brussels today. 
Hi, Sarah. Way more politicos even than usual floating around Brussels right now is because we had our big Politico 28 unveiling this week. And this list, it's an annual power ranking, but it's also subject to a lot of confusion about what it actually is. Nick, can you clarify this for us? Right. So it's not a ranking of the best or most virtuous people. It's simply the people who have had the most influence and are going to have the most influence in the coming year. So the list represents power and influence, not virtue and uh, goodness. Well, so Nick, who is the most influential person going to be next year, according to us? So the choice fell on Donald Tusk, who's uh, likely to be Poland's next leader. And the expectations around Donald Tusk and bringing Poland back to the European leaders table after years of sort of rebellion under law and justice are really what people are talking about in Brussels. There's a lot of expectation that Poland, France, and Germany are going to once again be able to work as a policymaking trio, a sort of driving force rather than the French and the Germans more or less fighting with the Polish. So I think that's why it was Donald Tusk, and that's why he's really seen as key person in the coming year. Any other names, Clea, any names stand out to you that kind of are helping you think about how to approach next year? Yeah, I found it interesting that in the end we put Gérald Darmanin, who's the French interior minister, on the list. He's somebody who doesn't have a great international reputation. When I mention him as a politician outside the French bubble, people kind of go, huh, who's that? But he is one of the presidential hopefuls. And as we um, get into the run-up to the EU elections, as Emmanuel Macron's term starts to falter because he can't run for a third mandate. All these people, these hopefuls are are sort of weighing more into the political debate. And he's somebody who's very interesting because he's a bit like a mini Sarkozy. And he is very tough on immigration. He's, you know, kind of sending out those signals that are um, quite in tune with the zeitgeist at the moment. But at the same time, he's very close to the people. So I thought it was interesting that we sort of introduced him a bit more widely. So, yeah, that's really interesting. We have this mini Sarkozy, a man of the people. And then we also talk about powerful people who are sometimes accused of being aloof. And I think it would be fair to say that Commission President Ursula von der Leyen falls into that category. However, much to our surprise and delight, she came to the gala on Tuesday night. And she even agreed to a sit-down interview on stage with our editor-in-chief, Jamil Anderlini. Do you believe that a two-state solution is still possible? And what would Europe's role be in, in helping to bring that about? Yeah, it is almost dramatic that because of the terrible events in the Middle East, the two-state solution is much more probable than it was months or years ago. And yes, there must be a political solution. There must be a perspective, and this perspective is the two-state solution. I've been speaking a lot to the Israelis, but also to al-Sisi, to the King of Jordan. I've had a phone call with Abbas. There seems to, slowly but surely, the formation of common ideas, how with a broad brush this could be. It cannot be a safe haven for the terror group Hamas anymore in Gaza. Hamas cannot be part of the governance structure, no way. An independent Palestinian state has to have the Palestinian Authority 
governing West Bank and Gaza. 1967 borders, East Jerusalem. Well, these are points I think that have to be discussed. So I said there are many, many questions open, but I think this is now or never to seize the moment. You know, Nick, she didn't dodge that answer. She she really replied. What did you make of it? Yeah, I thought it was a way of sort of grabbing a hold of the narrative again around the Israel-Hamas war. We've reported a lot about how this was a very difficult moment for her. Uh, she made a kind of impromptu trip to Israel shortly after the October 7 attacks, and it kind of blew up in her face with countries saying she she shouldn't have done that. And last night we saw Ursula von der Leyen really coming out with this sort of strong line on the two-state solution. But I'm intrigued by this kind of positive line amid all the devastation, the death, and the the tragedy in this conflict to see a glimmer of light and say, actually, maybe this is the first time we're seeing, you know, real talk of this two-state solution coming back to the table. All the leaders have called for it, Biden. But of course, it's complicated. And I think one of the things she didn't say is partly the issue is also the Israeli leadership, who's not been in favor of of the two-state solution. Um, And I think people are looking past that next step to, well, maybe if it's not Benjamin Netanyahu, maybe another Israeli leader could push things forward on Israel and the Palestinians. That person will also have to be on our Politico 28 list for next time, maybe. But um, Clea, <laughs> Clea how's, how's it playing in, uh, in the Elysee, you think? Well, I think those uh, words align with uh, Macron's position on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Obviously, the weight in Paris is much more in favor of the two-state solution than what we've heard from Ursula von der Leyen so far. I think there's a bit more pro-Palestinian in France. There was great tension between Macron's bubble and von der Leyen's team because she was seen as having kind of overstepped her mandate in sort of flying out to Israel, setting out the EU's position on the war and not consulting is what we're hearing with other leaders. And uh, this rang alarm bells in Paris. But I think those sort of tensions have calmed down and there's much more sense that there's communication between von der Leyen and the capitals. And this is, you know, much more of a sort of united front. Okay, so she's doing more interviews. She's offering olive branches and communicating with the capitals. I don't know, this sounds like maybe somebody who wants to keep their job. I think Jamil asked her about that too. What will you do differently in your second term? (laughs) There are two things important. First of all, keep the direction of travel for the big topics we've set out at the beginning of this mandate. That is the European Green Deal. That's the topic of digitalization and it is resilience. Although I must say I never expected that resilience will be defined the way it had to be defined then during this mandate. The second point is also, besides the continuity, the world is dictating partially what the tasks of the day are. So this always you have to integrate in in your political life too. So quite challenging. We heard Jamil take two different approaches to trying to get her to answer that question. She seems to have evaded him in both cases. Nick, what did you make of her? non-answers. I think this is one of those cases where uh, radio is not the best form. You got to look at the expressions of the people on on stage. This was all said with smiles, with a sort of almost a wink-wink kind of ambiance around it. We're getting to the stage this, I don't want to say this is an open secret or that it's a foregone conclusion because it isn't, but the path is narrowing towards 
von der Leyen being the only plausible person to, or that she will take this path. She's not denying. I think the evasion is playful. Manfred Weber was asked about it shortly afterwards, and he's also in this kind of playful evasion. And when you look at what she's been doing, she's been doing everything you would do if you wanted to build support in the EU capitals for her second mandate. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because I, I get the sense that in Brussels, there's it's a sort of foregone conclusion that von der Leyen is going to get a second mandate. And it's really interesting because in Paris, when I speak to people in the establishment and ministries, they kind of always throw in a little sort of, you know, maybe there's somebody else out there. Maybe there's this kind of little mood music from Paris that don't think it's folded. And I'm not seeing anybody else on the horizon, but there's definitely some messaging from Paris that this is not a done deal. And I think it relates to several things. It relates to how much control Paris and other capitals will have over her in a second mandate. I think they're a bit worried because what's great about von der Leyen is she's got a kind of EU president sort of look about her. People recognize her. That's a great asset. But it's also a danger. It means she's less, they're less able to control her because, you know, she's got her own kind of persona, influence, power. She's got a great relationship with Washington and she shouldn't overplay her relationship with Washington also. And I'm also hearing, you know, like the EU elections. What if the bombshell of the far right or the right or the anti-European populists victory, if that happens, what prospect does she have of becoming the next EU commission president? And that's actually a great point to transition to the other thing that I wanted to talk to both of you about, which is an article that you have just published looking at Wilders, but also at Marine Le Pen, some other politicians from the far right around Europe, looking at how they're kind of shifting their rhetoric about migration and also about the struggle from mainstream parties to respond. Clea, can you just kind of give us the main idea? Yeah, we started off with the victors of Geert Wilders in the Netherlands. And it's more of a sort of sweeping look at the far right across Europe. And many of the populist far right parties are in many countries either polling first or second ahead of mainstream parties. And what does this mean ahead of the EU elections? And and what we're seeing is an interesting movement, which is that in many countries, the far right parties are kind of moving towards the mainstream toning down their sort of anti-Islam, anti-migration rhetoric and adopting um, much more, you know, sort of mainstream conservative views and what this means, basically. And in France, it's very striking because we've had Marine Le Pen, who is the leader of the National Rally. So she has toned down her rhetoric and we're seeing much more extreme parties take on the more anti-migration, anti-Islam view. But what she's also doing is that she's also sending out occasionally small signals that she's still that person who campaigned, you know, against Islam and against mass migration. So, for example, in the last couple of weeks, we've had an attack in a small village in France where a number of youths from an impoverished banlieue came and attacked a village fate. And this had a a very dramatic impact on France. There's a lot of outrage about, you know, insecurity in rural towns. 
And language that Marine Le Pen used was, she spoke of a razia. And a razia is basically, you know, it's a word from the Arabic that means basically an incursion in enemy territory. So she's not actually pointing the finger at people from immigrant backgrounds. She's not actually saying we need to roll back immigration, we need to send these people back, which is what the extreme parties are. But she's kind of nodding to it. And this is things that are going into the campaign, uh, also looking at what happened in the Netherlands, where you kind of saw a similar movement from Wilders, is giving an indication that while these far-right movements go towards the centre, they are still managing to signal to their core base and to their past, and so therefore are in a position maybe to widen their voter base, Mm -hmm. attract people from the centre, but also their original voters from the extremes. Yeah, I remember when when I heard you guys describing this story in a news meeting, the thing that came to mind for me was this idea from the U.S. of a dog whistle. And that, you know, kind of came from the civil rights era where you would hear candidates use language that didn't sound to a naive listener, didn't sound overtly racist and sounded totally mainstream, but it would sort of activate for people who were racist, who supported segregation, that type of thing. They could hear the frequency that a dog could hear and that humans can't. And that's why we have that term dog whistle. And so just to maybe put a fine point on it, Nick, I met somebody at the Politico 28 Gala who was telling me that in the Netherlands, they're saying Heert Wilders has become Heert Milders, like mild, milder. And and we do see often that these more far-right politicians, when they actually get in the position of governing, we saw it with Georgia Maloney, they actually adopt more mainstream policies. But you guys are more saying it's not necessarily that they're going to have more mainstream policies. They just have more mainstream rhetoric. I'm not sure what kind of policies you're going to have. The one example we have is Georgia Maloney, who's chosen to be in the Western camp. Another example might be Viktor Orban, who's chosen to be in the Russia camp. So it's really a kind of a toss-up as to what we would get if either of these figures ended up in power. I think it's the parallel. You can really make a link between Hert Wilders and Marine Le Pen. These are two people who came up at the same time, who emerged into frontline politics and used to do things together, used to give press conferences together. Uh, with just masses of kind of, you know, bright blonde hair up on stage. They have tracked each other and taken this sort of mainstream, a cleaning up of their image. They have established their brand, anti-immigration, clash of civilizations. They've spent so many years doing it that they don't need to campaign on that particular issue, but they campaign on other issues, housing, access to healthcare, inequality in society, All of those things link back to their main thesis about migration. And that we're seeing really across the EU and even the AFD. People talk about the far-right party in Germany, a more recent formation, much more provocative and hard-edged in their rhetoric. They have also begun this process of toning down. And at the same time, their numbers are going up and up and up. So I think you're right. I think dog whistle, I think the brand is crucial. And I think the years spent building up their identity. In addition to these decades, as you say, of sort of building up a reputation, being able to say things without actually saying them, there is also a striking moment right now with the far right trying to create a sort of civilizational issue over the Israel-Hamas war, bringing migration into that. How's that working? In France, it's a very 
central and very explosive topic because there is the largest Jewish community in Europe and there's uh, the largest Muslim community in Europe as well living side by side. So anything you say on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has a domestic resonance. And so Marine Le Pen and basically her team have been playing a very shrewd, but, you know, Macron's troops will say very dangerous game is that she sided very decisively with the Jewish population. She defends very noisily Israel, and that's all fine, except that goes against kind of the past of the National Front that was with a leader, um, Jean-Marie Le Pen, who was, you know, known for making anti-Semitic jokes. And so the idea here is that she's kind of trying to buy back a sort of political respectability by joining this fight and using the situation and an uptick in anti-Semitic acts in France to buy her way back into the mainstream. From the perspective of the Macron's people, it's quite difficult to fight back because you can't attack people for wanting to fight discrimination. So they're there criticizing what the far right is doing, whereas the far right is just standing up against against discrimination. So they're playing a game that's quite smart and uh, puts the mainstream parties in a, in a difficult position. It's interesting. Le Pen has also been accused of using white supremacist dog whistles herself, calling Macron a globalist, which has been sort of associated as being an anti-Semitic dog whistle. So very fascinating to also mainstream politicians try to deal with the fact that their rhetoric has been kind of swept out from under them. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right on that. This was an unresolved issue within the national rally for as long as I can remember. We would ask her about that. She didn't quite know what to say about Israel and the Palestinians, and now she appears to have made a choice. What the analysts were telling us is they were saying the outpouring, the emotion and the tension in European societies has contributed certainly to Wilder's results in the Netherlands. And why is that? Because they say it has reawakened these tensions, these civilizational tensions within Europe, within the minority Muslim population and the rest of the population, just nervousness about, well, whose values are going to be dominant? Should we have security concerns? And you keep on hearing this phrase from diplomats and from officials around here, we don't want to import this conflict into Europe. And I think that's also certainly a factor in the Wilders result and probably playing forward into the campaigns now. All right. I think on that civilizational crisis note, <laughs> we'll end it here. A uh, good thing for people to work with as they head into the weekend. So thanks so much, Clea and Nick, for being here. Thanks, Sarah, for having us. Thank you, Sarah. After the break, we'll dial into Berlin to hear how the ruling by the country's highest court overturned the government's financial plans and caused a bit of a political crisis. We're talking about more than 60 billion euros that Chancellor Olaf Scholz suddenly can't spend. You've basically pulled the rug out from under this coalition and everything that they've been working on for the past two years has basically been called into question now because they don't have the money. Seriously, you won't want to miss it. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So joining me now is Matt Karnichnig, our chief Europe correspondent in Berlin and a longtime friend of EU Confidential. Hi, Matt. Hello. So this is my first episode hosting this podcast. And I told our producers, Giannis and Christina, I only want to talk about the absolute sexiest topics in Europe. I thought you only wanted to talk about me. <laughs> Matt Karnichnig and the German budget. I mean... Doesn't get sexier than that. Um, Matt, why is the German budget a sexy topic right now? Well, basically what's happened is that Germany's constitutional court has ruled that the way in which the German government had planned its entire legislative agenda was illegal. And that the way they were going to raise these funds that they were planning to spend for the so-called climate transition is not going to work because it is not constitutional, basically. And so it really throws the German government back to square one, and they're going to have to find new ways to scratch together the money that they're going to need in order to realize this very ambitious restructuring of the German economy that was supposed to last many years. It involves all kinds of complicated subsidies. And right now, they're kind of looking at one another, wondering how they're going to make it happen. But I mean, governments write budgets all the time. Like, what's the problem? So the way to think of this is that the German budget altogether is about 460 billion euros. But only roughly 10% of that is actually available to the coalition to do what they want with. This additional money that they were planning on using was actually outside of the regular budget in what they call special funds. And the issue is that they needed to draw on these special funds, which were to the tune of tens of billions of euros, in order to avoid violating Germany's deficit limits, which is anchored in the Constitution. So you have to go back to 2009 during the great financial crisis. At this time, Germany had to step in to rescue its banks like a lot of Western governments did. And there was this push then to say, we need to kind of prevent these governments from getting out of control in terms of their spending. So we're going to anchor a debt break in the Constitution. And that's what they did. And then everybody kind of forgot about it. And it wasn't really a problem because Germany was recording every year from 2009 onwards, surpluses, the economy was booming, there was a lot of demand for German exports in the US and Asia, etc. So it wasn't really an issue until COVID hit. And then they needed to spend a huge amount of money as governments all over the world did in order to prop up the economy. And then they started getting into this territory where they were going to violate this so-called debt break. And in order to do that, they had to declare an exception and say, 
we need to violate the debt break because of this unexpected event, this unexpected emergency, which the pandemic was. That was one justification. Another justification was the uh, war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But now they've kind of run out of justifications. And this, the, uh, the constitutional court is saying you can't just move this money around and keep spending it for other things than what you were originally intended it for. So they couldn't use it, for example, for the climate transition. This is the point, is that they were trying to use funds essentially that had been put aside during the pandemic to deal with COVID for the climate transition. And the Constitutional Court has basically said you are not allowed to repurpose these emergency funds for something else. And so people have been saying that this you know, could blow up the whole coalition. Why does it make such a big difference? It makes a big difference because this agreement to use these special funds, this was a pot of $60 billion that they were planning to use over the next few years. The reason it's so essential is that this coalition only came into being because of this agreement. This is basically the foundation for this three-way coalition between the Social Democrats, that's Olaf Scholz's party, the Chancellor's party, the Free Democrats, which is a conservative liberal party, which is very hawkish when it comes to fiscal matters, and the Greens. And the only reason the Greens wanted to join this coalition was so that they could see through their very ambitious climate goals and their dreams of refashioning the German economy root and branch to make it less or not at all dependent on fossil fuels, and also bring them together with the Free Democrats who are really kind of focused on balancing the budget, on maintaining the debt break, and so on. And that's why it's so important now, because you've basically pulled the rug out from under this coalition, and everything that they've been working on for the past two years has basically been called into question now because they don't have the money. So if there's no, if there's no money, that means what? It means austerity? Tax increases? What happens? Well, this is the big question. There are only three options. The one option would be to raise taxes, which the Free Democrats also refuse to do. You could cut certain programs, which is also very controversial, because here you have the Social Democrats, and their justification for building this government was to increase social spending in certain areas. And then you have the Greens, who support many of the same programs, uh, social spending that the uh, Social Democrats do. So it's going to be painful for one of these three parties to cut something, and it's going to hurt them with their base. And so that's the negotiation that's going on right now. But that's going to be very, very difficult. And I think they've kind of come to the conclusion that they're not going to be able to do this as quickly as they hoped, meaning by the end of the year. The third option would be to declare an emergency again in order to circumvent the debt break. Now, it looks like this is something that they're going to have to do retroactively for 2023 in order to justify the extra spending that they undertook in order to subsidize energy prices for consumers and businesses. But there's a big question about whether or not they're going to be able to do that for 2024. Well, so if this is such a huge problem for the coalition, I mean, does that mean there would be a, a snap election? It's very difficult for that to happen in Germany. Essentially, the chancellor himself would have to decide that the government had run its course and hold a no-confidence vote. But it could happen. What could happen is that the FDP might decide to leave the government, 
which most observers think is unlikely because they are polling now at about 5%, which is the threshold to enter the parliament. So it might be like committing suicide, political suicide for them to do so. So I think that most people think the government is likely to limp along for the next year and a half until the next election because ending the coalition might even be worse for them politically. You used one of the few German words that even most non-German speakers know and love in your article about this, schadenfreude. And indeed, you know, all these kind of debt problems sound more like a, more like a Southern issue, you know? This is the irony of this whole situation, actually, is that Germany is usually the one who's the taskmaster when it comes to ensuring that other countries are not spending too much. And certainly people will remember what happened to Greece and to the other so-called pig countries. That's not my word. That's a word that was thrown around by economists to stand for Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain. But jokes aside, the problem here is not so much that Germany has too much debt. In fact, it still has a lot less debt than most of the countries in the Eurozone, also in relation to its GDP. The problem is is that the Germans have put these shackles on themselves with this debt break. And this is a a very uh, strict system that they're in now, where they basically have to balance the budget every year, which means that it's going to be very hard for any future government, as long as this debt break is in place, to undertake an ambitious program to revitalize the economy, to uh, restructure the economy in in a fundamental way, which is what the Germans are trying to do now. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, Matt, for bringing Sexy back. Thank you very much. And that's all we have for you this week. Make sure you follow EU Confidential wherever you listen to your podcasts. Rate us on your favorite podcast app or write to us directly at podcast at politico.eu. We love getting emails from you with your comments, praise, subtle criticism, as well as ideas for our next guests or topics you think we should cover. Thanks to Deanna Sturris, our senior audio producer, and Christina Gonzalez, our executive producer for audio. We'll be back next week. See you then.